Welcome to the first episode of the Documenting Climate Change podcast. My name is Chris King, and I've started up Documenting Climate Change out of a desire to mobilize documentary storytellers of all disciplines to collaborate and support one another in order to tell more stories and exploring a greater diversity of topics on the issue of climate change, as well as train those who wish to learn how to tell engaging, impactful stories on the issue. This podcast is only one of the ways in which I hope to achieve this. You can sign up to the weekly newsletter offering advice, resources and featured work by visiting documentingclimatechange.org forward slash newsletter. If you'd like to become an active member of the community, you can also sign up to access the website itself. For now, there are only group forums, but with time it will become a space to learn, collaborate and engage. If you're based in London, you can also join the Documenting Climate Change Meetup Group, where I organise working groups on short-form documentary filmmaking and radio documentary production with film screenings, talks, workshops and much more in the pipeline. If you'd like to share your experience of documenting climate change, the causes, the impacts, the mitigation efforts or adaption efforts, and in any format, then please get in touch. You can email me at chris at documentingclimatechange.org. But back to this episode of the podcast. Now, I'm of the belief not only that there needs to be a greater quantity and range of stories showing the diverse and global impact of climate change today and sharing the voices of those people who are being impacted by it right now, uh, going beyond what's unfolding at the Earth's poles, but that we also need to change the way that we tell these stories in order to affect meaningful change. There's a need for more human-centric stories that are local to the intended audience, so they appreciate that it's not something that's geographically distant from them and that are shared in a way that will inspire people to take meaningful action moving beyond the visual cliches that have failed to generate significant engagement over the past few decades. So it was reassuring when I stumbled across the work of Climate Visuals, an initiative set up by the organisation Climate Outreach, that I wasn't alone in my belief. Climate Visuals aims to catalyse a new, more compelling and diverse visual language for climate change through the creation of seven core principles that are based on international social research conducted in the US and Europe. And like documenting climate change, these principles call for more stories that are human-centric, local to the intended audience, and more. So to kick off this season, I'm very happy to share with you a conversation I had with Toby Smith, an award-winning environmental photographer and the program lead for Climate Visuals. We talk about how visual storytellers can better document and represent the issue of climate change through implementing the seven core principles compiled through the research that they've conducted in the hope of addressing the political and general inertia that exists to taking significant and meaningful action that is so desperately needed. Since recording the interview in December 2019, Getty Images has actually partnered up with Climate Visuals to launch a new grant of 10,000 US dollars, which aims to support the creation of compelling, colorful, and emotionally engaging imagery that explores the complex and layered crisis that is climate change. A link to the grant application is in the show notes. Just go to documentingclimatechange.org forward slash podcasts and navigate to the page for this episode. The deadline is the 28th of February, so hopefully you're listening to this in time to apply. We also talk about Toby's work as a photographer and his many years of experience exploring long-term projects, including a study of hydroelectricity in Scotland, renewable energy technology across China and India, illegal logging and mining in Madagascar, and documenting water scarcity across the Himalayas, to name but a few. Before we begin the interview, there's one last thing I'd like to say. Documenting climate change is very new and a work in progress. But I truly believe in order for us to get more stories and more impactful stories out there that generates meaningful action at all levels of our societies, that we are much stronger and more able to achieve this in the short space of time that we have by working together. So please, let's start doing exactly that.
My name's Toby Smith. I'm the program lead of Climate Visuals, which is a research-based communications consultancy. We're a non-for-profit based in Oxford, and our simplest version of our strapline is we're looking to improve how climate change is visualized from an evidence-based perspective. I joined the program three months after, and well, and still am a freelance photographer. And for most of those 10 years, I've focused on environmental issues, many of which uh, segue into climate change as a much wider narrative. And can you maybe explain a bit more about the work being carried out by Climate Outreach and, and Climate Visuals? Sure. So so Climate Visuals is a program that was started um, uh, almost three years ago. It's, mm-hmm. it's foundation funded at its core. Um, it... The start of it was a research paper by our head of research called Adam Corner, which effectively looked at trying to understand imagery, single editorial style imagery connected to climate change. And Mm -hmm. really, there's quite a lot of nuances to the research. But the pillar of this is that images that are iconographic and, you know, become our stereotypes and our kind of well-worn messages of climate change, the obvious ones being polar bears and images of factories and smokestacks. Mm-hmm. We read, our read, the research shows that these images are massively emblematic of climate change, mm-hmm. but what they've become is actually quite ineffective from a behavioral point of view with regards to, you know, a call to action or actually um, having any kind of motivation or effect on the people viewing them. Um, yeah. So the, the research itself is then distilled into a more friendly report, which uh, produced uh, seven climate visuals principles that we call them. And those principles are a simple kind of how-to guide of commissioning or mostly actually selecting imagery around climate change so that it has much more effect on the, an impact on the audience that's viewing it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the other parts of the program is, you know, we use those same guidelines to produce an, an image library this mm-hmm. is a library that references photography from all over the photography ecosystem. We don't actually own the content ourselves. Um, okay. And also myself and our, my partnership manager, we, we actively consult and do workshops in the photography space to um, help editors, media companies, brands improve how they visualize climate change. How receptive have they been to that? I assume you're getting an increased number of calls and and more people reaching out to you. 2019 uh, on reflection has been, you know, for people working in the climate change sector, they've seen 2019 be the year where it's gone from capturing kind of maybe a narrower band of the public's imagination and insights Mm -hmm. to being a global news phenomenon that has been everywhere. And that's... uh, you know, there's this huge tipping point, whether that's XR protests or some of the the fact that climate change is so deeply embedded in, in politics, you know, internationally now. Mm-hmm. 2019 really feels like a very big year in climate change communications. And and this kind of was happening around me as I took on this, uh, the, the job in August. And yeah. the very first thing that we did was uh, partner with The Guardian on mm. setting part of their climate change pledge 2019 helping them rethink their image choices around um, the climate crisis and and climate communications um i mean the politest way of putting how well things are going is that you know the, the phone is warm but yeah. we're, trying to make, we're, we're trying to make sure that we're being strategic about who yeah. we work with and yeah. 
trying to make sure that we partner with um, the third parties and people in the photography world that are going to have the most impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are being really receptive. You know, I, I you know, t- to get the most impact and in line with my own background and contacts, I'm looking at working a lot with traditional and print media, um, working mm-hmm. with uh, the image editors and, you know, um, you know, some of the relationships are, are are off the record as we're working behind the scenes, but yeah. we're getting a. What's great is that we're getting inquiries of assisting the media on both sides of the political spectrum, which mm-hmm. to me okay, is a great. real is really helping recognise that climate change is an issue that is now working more across politics uh, yeah. as just in the the preserve of the kind of established environmentalists or mm. or left folk. But also it's it's saying that I, I assume then there's an increased understanding of the need to move away from protest images and politicians in conferences and there's a, a greater need to explore the subject in greater depth. I think the photography in general has has moved towards integrity. I mean the idea mm. of these kind of uh, quite constructed thematic illustrations around themes and around stories are really rapidly becoming old hat and i really mm-hmm. do um pity any any brand or any anyone working in illustration or in the public space that are still bound by these very safe constructed images so mm. i think that's something that's recognized across um the use of photography across the sectors Mm-hmm. But really, um, people are starting to realise what their audience want. I mean, I mean, you know, and that's something that I feel I could say safely across editorial and commercial is that mm-hmm. audiences are becoming more in, they're much more intelligent, much more informed, and are much, uh, you know, much more discerning around what they read around the climate narrative and around environmental narratives. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, from my perspective, it's great to see that that means what might have been more conservative or less creative uh publishers in the in the in the public space are now being forced or or uh, in some of the best cases leading the way in delivering that type of truthful strong uh little bit risky ballsy content to their audiences and that mm-hmm. that, that we we we're great. We're, we're really happy to support that that movement with uh, with an evidence based approach. Based on the research that's been done, why do you think it's taken us so long to get to where we are now, in terms of having that understanding? I always hesitate to even imagine that I'm an expert in behavioural change theory, but if <laughs> if I'm looking towards uh, kind of visual examples, I, I do believe that it's about this kind of tipping point of presence. You know, mm-hmm. there's. Uh, the concept of climate change and the messaging is, is we're surrounded by it, you know, whether that's from the media or social media or, or products or sustainability messages. And I, I just feel like, like many sub issues around climate change and environmental, there's this, there's this tipping point where a issue is no longer avoidable and becomes part of all mainstream dialogue. And mm. at that tipping point, very quickly it descends into uptake and action. And I feel, you know, 2019 for climate change specifically, climate emergency represents that that tipping point, that kind of continued and also local, I think local is a really key word, exposure mm. to issues that, that, that are part of climate change. 
Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I've I've felt and, and that motivated me to start this was the feeling that in order to get the British public, for example, to really engage with the, the issue, there was a need to bring it to their doorstep. And despite the fact that for many, it's evident that it's already here, for so many who are reliant on different news sources, they're not necessarily exposed to it. Um, the the issue of climate change or or that connection between weather patterns and biodiversity loss and other things. And that in order to do that and and to create an an understanding that it is here, that we're in the middle of the crisis and that it's not something in the distance geographically, you know, where it's the Philippines or Bangladesh or or, uh, the Maldives, um, but also in time, that there's a need to explore local stories and inform people of what's happening in our own communities in relation to climate change. I think the local element of it is is integral really to, to getting people to really appreciate where we're at right now and hopefully to take meaningful action in terms of mitigation or and engage with it more fully on a political level. I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the areas I think illustrates what you're saying, I was reflecting on with a journalist only a few days ago is, is say the concept of flooding in the uk right so so flood flooding is an event that you might traditionally from an insurance perspective suggest your house may flood every 50 years mm. uh, you know or um and the severity of which is measured in meters i think you know what's happened in the last 10 years in the uk with flooding is that those flooding events are happening across a broader range of rivers and the frequency of those extreme flooding events is becoming, you know, exponentially more. Yeah. And coupled with that is the acceptance by national media, you know, particularly the more conservative uh, sources like the BBC, that this extreme weather is here to stay and is a mm. component of climate change. Yeah. So this idea of an issue needing to be on your doorstep is particularly relevant if it's two feet of dirty brown water from a local river that's washing mm. into your house. And mm. I think, you know, flooding in the UK is, and it being associated with climate change, is is a real, really strong step. Um, Whereas traditionally, we might complain about the increase of frequency of heat waves. But when we're starting Mm. to talk about uh, extreme weather from, you know, thinking in the UK from it being uh, the beast from the east last year, having a climate change component through to all the flooding that we've seen in the last couple of months here in the UK, that to me is a nice metaphor for what the wider UK climate change um, changing narrative has had. Where you're based, there's been flooding, hasn't there, in Gloucestershire? So kind of locally, even here where I live in, in Gloucestershire, in a kind of quite high valley, I'm not particularly worried about floods, but mm. the amount of snow that came in last year kind of beat the, the, the parish record for the amount of snowfall. Right. And certainly, yeah. you know, talking to local land managers and, and, and farmers in the area, the, the water table that they're tapping for irrigation and, and the ability to, to keep their animals hydrated is now like an accepted operational concern of, mm-hmm. of, of farms in Gloucester. Um, mm. And, you know, Odd ones as well, which I think is is also relevant, is which is you know the which is a really kind of slightly upside down metaphor. But you know the British wine industry is having a field yeah. day, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. and and that is a direct result of, of climate change. You can yeah. now grow Pinot Noir and sparkling wine grapes mm. in Kent and in the valleys of, of Gloucestershire, which would be unthinkable from a climatic perspective only. 10 to 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. There, there's just a, there's a myriad of different stories that can be explored 
because it just has so many different elements to it, either from an impact perspective or in terms of contributing factors like food waste. You know, I've, I've been documenting that for um, a few years and that's a massive contributor and, and the food system as a whole, um, the contribution that it's making. There are just so many different stories that can and should be explored uh, on a local level around impact and, and causes and things. And would you be able to explain a bit? You mentioned the, the seven principles that Climate Visuals came up with out of the, the research that was carried out. Can you explain those a little bit more? So, the, yeah, so Climate Visuals evidence has been, we have seven principles which we use to kind of as a bit of a tool for either photographers or editors to use when thinking about work. And actually, mm-hmm. the seventh one is, uh, is actually uh, the one that's slightly contentious at the moment. We'll talk about that when we get it. So okay. some of this sounds obvious, but actually when you review a lot of the illustrations in climate change photography, it doesn't fit. So, and, and again, this advice is also, uh, you know, we haven't evidence tested it, but I'd say this advice goes beyond photography into, uh, you know, advice for talking about climate change in general. Mm-hmm. It goes back to this point of integrity, you know, show real people. Uh, and that's one of, that's our first principle that I cannot stress is useful enough. You, yeah. uh, if ever you, you know, a, uh, Joe Public is as good at spotting a staged stock image as a seasoned art director. So, you know, the, people people don't know it, but the, the idea of a message of truth and reality in an image is people are not easily tricked. Um, mm. Telling new stories is the second one. And I think this is, you know, we, we've talked about this in this, this interview, but, you know, people are, people respond better to the new to the new stories that they can they have a sense of especially if they're localized um Mm -hmm. the third one is is climate change causes at scale so the obvious one here is a you know an aerial shot of a of a motorway clogged with traffic Mm. is much more effective than say showing a single unit of a car with the exhaust chugging away that's that's Mm. the example i use um we also want people to show emotionally powerful impacts and i think Mm -hmm. there's um that can mean different things to different people, but um, we recently ran a photography competition and our second place image was a, a mother in, in, in Mongolia holding her newborn child, which, mm-hmm. had, which was, uh, you know, at risk of dying from a respiratory illness. From, right. Uh, and, and, you know, we debated as to whether or not air pollution is a climate change direct story, but yeah, it to me. And that image is not immediately climate change on first visuals, but mm. this that kind of well used but still relevant metaphor of, of that maternal care being a climate change issue, it mm. made it for a huge, strong uh, image. Yeah, but it's also it's also important, you know, to to understand your audience and who you're pitching it to. Now, understand your audience can be interpreted really broadly, mm. can be geographic or political or socio-economic as well so you know our evidence suggests that uh, different political persuasions respond differently to different images but but also you know understanding your audience potentially means in its simplest form pitching or sharing stories that resonate with people you know, mm-hmm. that, because they feel like the story the story is is relevant to their own position in, in life um mm. The other one, which is also linked to that, is which can be difficult, is, is showing local but serious impacts. And if a story isn't local geographically, it can be made to feel local by potentially using um, elements of the narrative that are um, 
present in, in the audience that's being published in. Mm-hmm. And I think a nicer way of looking at this is um, stories in Western Europe are relevant to the rest of Western Europe, although mm-hmm. you know um, there's a lot of uh, political differences between, say, the UK and Central Europe or Eastern Europe or, 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 or the Iberia, Spain and Portugal. Mm-hmm. The socioeconomic structures of the countries are parallel enough, as is the kind of fabric of cities or landscape, that yeah. that, when pitched in the right way, could be local, and yeah. but also showing serious impacts. So you know, we we joked around um, English wine producers uh, being evidence of climate change, mm-hmm. but it's not a serious impact. It's not yeah. something that will actually promote a call to action. Mm. Um, and the, the final principle which which we're kind of thinking about removing or if not removing certainly doing extra homework in is this idea to be careful around protest imagery so mm. the origin of this advice was was that a, you know if you wind back five years uh, you know being very crass a, a protester had a look there yeah. was a kind of established aesthetic of what a protester might look like from a certain political or social persuasion and, and yes. anyone who then sees that image um and is as of a very different background or aesthetic to that protester mm-hmm. would then find that image re- they basically have no personal connection to the to the protester yeah. so the image becomes ineffective yeah but really in, in 2019 2020 this idea of protest imagery effectively it's been rewritten because mm. Protesters are now XR and school strikes. So mm. if a protester is the polite little old lady that lives down the road, or you know, nurses and doctors or civil servants or mm. or, or nine-year-olds outside Trafalgar Square waving placards, though those uh, levels of, of resonance and how people feel apart or emotionally moved by those protesters mm. is something that we think is uh both you know want, we want to review our advice on protest imagery but mm. i also think it might go some way to explain why you know xr and the school strikes have had such universal effect if not um by direct action of the participants you know mm-hmm. um, seeing people like yourself protesting is far more powerful than seeing someone you're you feel separated from but then there has been the debate around the inclusivity of, of the protests in terms of, you know, a lot are white middle class people who are participating in that. So there, there's still maybe a reason to, to be careful no, in, in terms of or you're still maybe possibly limiting the people who will engage with it. I, 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 I agree with that. And I also think, but what I think, but I think we're starting to see wider recognition. We have a very long way to go. But if we mm. think about imagery specifically, um, yeah. I think about nature imagery, for example, or, or the concept of, of nature and climate as a photography library mm-hmm. is also currently being very much dominated by um, kind of white middle class people enjoying nature reserves, whereas mm-hmm. actually yeah. nature and climate is mm-hmm. the nature part of that is incredibly more is incredibly diverse, whether that's mm-hmm. local parks, canals, floodplains, or brownfield site or, or anything that's considered natural mm. but then also the the users of that nature is obviously incredibly more diverse than than what the current index is and yeah. Yeah. Um, i think this 
you know, there's elements of representation that are good, but I, I'm, I'm pleased to feel that not all, but many sectors are, you know, there, there is a general consensus to improve representation that's creeping through. Mm-hmm. Um, but photography has a long way to go. I mean, yeah. Yeah. that's that's systemic. You know, photojournalists, yeah, myself guilty of, uh, mm-hmm. have a stereotype um, of class and, and gender and ethnic background. You know, th- yeah. these are, they're not balanced in the industry. And so that's a big systemic change that's needed from the bottom up as well. Yeah. But then hopefully from a climate change perspective or, or that issue, and hopefully all this dialogue that's opening up between yourselves and editorial teams, then that'll hopefully make the shift or expedite that shift to something more inclusive and, and also following these seven principles. Uh, more closely. Solutions journalism is something that's that's been embraced by a lot of people now in terms of just an understanding that because of the very dynamic divisive time that we're living in and, and so so many top level existential crises unfolding or, or that we're in the midst of that people can be quite overwhelmed and, and just feel very disempowered by it all. And obviously, climate change, we need to act as quickly as possible and as significantly as possible. So there's a need to somehow engage people who are maybe feeling overwhelmed and and maybe been saturated with these stereotypes and and switched off or just seeing images that they don't necessarily engage with. That isn't the principle that you've included, but I notice in in other research, it's been discussed and, and said that there's potential for it, but there's also pitfalls. Could you maybe share a bit more about that side of it and, and the potential that exists for solutions journalism and, and just getting people to feel a little bit more hope and that there is the possibility to address the issue to some degree, a meaningful degree? So, so I think, I think um, we've, all, we've all been slightly guilty of gorging on bad and disaster news for, mm. for, 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 and probably still are if you look at heat maps of uh, news apps, etc. Mm. But you're, you're right in that you know, this, if you want someone to do a call to action, if you want them to actually make positive change, bombarding and saturating people with negative messaging will is you know probably result in more likely to be d- despair and depression. I can't help but reflect on British politics at the moment when I think about that. But <laughs> um, but the but this this idea of solutions, right? So to think about some real tangible evidence, we have uh, on our climate visuals image library. One of our ways of filtering is by um, causes, effects, and solutions. Mm-hmm. We are seeing those being reverse ranked. Uh, you know, if if we have right. ten, un- if we had ten units, seven out of ten cats are looking for solutions. Two out of ten cats are looking at effects, and we get a dribble of people still interested in climate causes. Right. We, we oh. know what we know. We know what the problems are. That that mm-hmm. that's you know speaking in very general terms mm. but we we have not yet embraced or invested in or moved or are moving fast enough towards solutions mm. and of, obviously the visual index and stories need to um keep pace with that and nurture that momentum and feed it and keep the pressure on uh for as long as possible to get the change done and mm-hmm. um you know other other anecdotal evidence I've heard is that photographers with climate solution stories who were at Perpignan Photojournalism Festival in September sold them four times over. I, you know, right. myself as a, as a freelancer got emails of editors throughout September to, to November, mm-hmm. uh, especially around the events in New York with editors looking out for climate solution stories. 
there's, there's quite a few systemic reasons why those stories aren't photographed as much. Some of them are easy to understand. Um, you know, for example, a lot of climate solutions are wrapped up in investment and intellectual property security and non-disclosure agreements. So the mm -hmm. idea that, that the world's press is going to hear about climate technology solutions as they are first born is, is not realistic because mm -hmm. uh, that can disrupt some people's commercial pathways, for example. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Also, you know, the stories are much more fragmented and are often much smaller, you know, and are less aggregated. You can you can lump together coal-fired power stations across the world and they are a cause of climate change. Mm -hmm. Yet you can't as easily aggregate, find or sift the thousands of university postdoctoral researchers trying to crack the efficiency of flexible solar panels or, or, or other such wonderful projects they've all got invested mm -hmm. in. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, then, and then linked to that is... Uh, researchers and people at the cutting edge of new innovations aren't as press ready as um, all the folks with established solutions, right? You know, marketing mm -hmm. and branding and, and PR is something that in a, the cycle of innovation comes quite late and may even be private for some time. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it takes quite savvy and skillful research to find, you know, the fragmented, geeky, disparate coal face that that is coal that is climate solutions, mm. and uh, we don't have we don't have a great arsenal of magic bullets for climate change yet. So, mm. you know, there isn't anything for even the hungriest, most determined journalists to swarm on just yet. Mm -hmm. But uh, Hopefully, if we have that conversation in a year, we'll we'll be reflecting on the climate solutions rather than trying to find the damn things. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that's really interesting to to hear that, and it's it's good. But then there's a flip side to focusing on the solutions, though, is and at the expense of the causes and the the impacts, which is to create false hope. Is there not the potential for that? If all these solution stories are at the expense then of pages being devoted to the actual causes and, and impacts? My, my maybe quite cynical observation of that is that there isn't enough hope out there yet to be overrun by it. So I'm not, <laughs> it's, kind of, it's not a point of concern yet. Don't no. like the, let's not, be careful how you light the fire in case it gets too big and you turn it off. Like, no, I, I don't, you know, as a cynic, I don't think we're there with climate solutions yet. Okay. But the, but the, the other kind of cynical dark side of me when thinking about um, the evolution of that is that mm -hmm. what is worrying is that the, commercial and capitalistic powers that be that represent uh, continued climate change causes are quite fast moving at positioning themselves under the banner of innovation and green yeah. and tech sustainability. Yeah. And the, one, one of the best illustrations I've got of that is if you happen to find a copy of the, the Economist that came out in September 2019, which was mm. their climate change special, yeah, it was it was chock it was chock full of wonderful reportage around climate, including mm. solutions. Yeah, but every single, almost every single advertising space in that issue was devoted to airlines and fossil fuel companies rapidly repositioning themselves to look clean, shiny, efficient, and sustainable. Yeah. So, so you know, the idea of uh, I think the idea of false hope is uh, doesn't concern me as much. But the idea of false hope 
with regards to nefarious branding opportunities of dirty industry to get in on our mm. interest in hope is mm. I think more of an immediate concern. And yeah, yeah. And these 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 entities are well resourced. You know, they yeah. they they are advertising agencies and branding momentums who can purchase media space and devise campaigns that are very effective because mm. they're well resourced and they have a large amount of shareholders and investments that they're trying to keep afloat. Um, yeah. Yeah. We need to keep an eye on that. Yeah, uh, in I suppose what they're attempting to do is create this illusion that we can continue, we can maintain the status quo and we can continue consuming at the levels that we are, the resources that we have, and that it'll all be okay because they're going to come in and they're going to create technology that's going to allow us to live the lives that we currently live without any sort of disruption to them. It's like guerrilla marketing efficiency. I mean, yeah. like, I feel good because I've just bought a new uh, highly efficient diesel Volkswagen because <laughs> The, brand, the branding around it tells me that I'm going to get 85 miles to the gallon. Yeah. Whereas actually, uh, I should have bought a Kia Nero that's fully electric. Um, yeah. But, but they didn't have the advertising power yeah. that, that the German company did. So you know, I think there's a, that, you know, there's there's a way in which that intelligence of reading images by consumers, I hope. Mm. Uh, Needs to work really hard to cut through advertising, you know. Yeah, yeah. The boss, the boss of Ryanair on Radio Four, is suggesting that he's the most carbon-efficient airline. That might be true, <laughs> but it's still an airline, right? Exactly. What about stories that kind of hook people by stealth, as it were? You know, engage people by stealth. So, say the Mongolia image that you referred to that uh, won the competition earlier in the year. You were saying visually it doesn't necessarily link with climate change, but the story, the background story, and, and the pollution-related aspect of it. That's obviously that has relevance. But the image itself is of a mother with with child. And what are your thoughts on using images like that? As, as a lead into a wider story where people are captured by something that, that is fairly neutral or might seem on the surface to be neutral from a climate change perspective. And then as they get further into the story, you know, the visual story, the, the photo essay, then that's when they're exposed to the other layers to it. Do you think there's value in that? And so I had this exact conversation with uh, uh, a head of a news agency. He, he sits mm -hmm. on top. Well, he, he sits on top of news feeds and, and curates them before they go out to the to the papers. And the the reflection that we had is that in many ways there's a responsibility of the contributor, the photographer, to to frame the story uh, mm -hmm. in the first instance. And it could be um, misappropriate for an editor or later a newspaper to then use the photography as a as a as an illustration for something outside of that context. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we do need to be careful. No, basically, we're trying to make drought, food security, air pollution. We, we, we are rightly, you know, framing those narratives as climate change. Yeah. But we need to also be careful that in doing so, we don't um, over blur the lines or, you know, reframe mm. everything as a, as a climate story. So there's a, and I think one of the things that gives me that makes me do feel slightly hopeful about that is, uh, you know, this specific image we've mentioned, um, thinking about, you know, that image in particular, the judges on the panel, we, we, we debated for about 25 minutes and there was a difference of opinion in our judging panel as to whether mm -hmm. or not the image was a climate change image. Mm -hmm. um, if, and the actual 
promotion of that debate and that conversation it, to me is a hopeful one mm. like there's there's no you know it, it didn't matter in the end if the image was or was not as per our jury a climate change image mm-hmm. but the fact that five people were sat there having lunch arguing about air pollution as a climate change issue mm. that that's a conversation that we would hope be replicated so yeah. there's a yeah. to me if what the image does and the way it's framed promotes debate and conversation that's extremely valuable as well. Most definitely. And you as a photographer, so you've mentioned that you've explored various different stories which have included water scarcity, illegal logging and renewable energy, to name a few. But can you share a bit about the stories that you've explored and, and your motivation behind them and, and the challenges you faced and how you went about producing them? I, I think thinking about my, my kind of repertoire of stories which are undeniably climate change, I think my often my interest started with producing a counter-narrative so you know something that was established but trying to uh almost turn mirror the story or turn it on its head or present a large issue in a in an unexpected way so mm-hmm. uh, and that's a theme which you know practically has taken many different forms uh, you know i you know to give you three of the most obvious examples i use is one of which was my first ever project light after dark was a very simple uh, concept and I photographed every single coal-fired power station in the UK mm-hmm. but I tried to make the images as seductive and as beautiful and as palatable as possible mm-hmm. which is which was presented at, at direct odds with the horror of their emissions mm-hmm. uh, you know that was the kind of tension there um, and then for my my follow-up to that project which I I shot across Scotland on renewable energy um, I deliberately worked with the counter-narrative or two counter narratives. The first one being the time of year. Um, nearly all renewable energy aesthetics are associated with uh, blue, you know, blue skies and fluffy white clouds. Yet, yeah. from an engineering perspective, all of these systems are designed to withstand and are generating the most energy when they're being absolutely clouded by the crappiest weather imaginable. And that's yeah. why. You put a wind turbine where you put it. You don't put mm. it there to, to fly a kite with your five-year-old. You put it mm. to get smacked by relentless Scottish gales because that's yeah. what's going to generate the most electricity. So I tried to harness that. Um, I tried to flip the aesthetic to something slightly more sinister and cold and miserable and wild, uh, which is actually the engineering constraints that all these systems were built to. Mm-hmm. And when they're doing the best good, you know, is mm-hmm. when it's yacking it down with rain the dam is full then you're generating the most hydro Mm. if the wind is ripping up a gale in the middle of the night then your wind turbines having a good day so (laughs) i tried to play with that aesthetic um and the final one which was more of a a narrative balance was i spent over five months in china um looking at all the places where China was innovating and leading in renewable energy. And, and actually in, in 2019, that's a relatively given story, but, mm-hmm. but wind back to kind of 2012, 2013, China was being universally portrayed by the world's media as the coal burning CO2 behemoth of, mm. of the Eastern Hemisphere. Yeah. And that was, that was accurate while I was in China. Like, you know, there was, you know, it was building a coal-fired power station every day. But China was also investing more in renewable technology than the whole rest of the world combined in that mm-hmm. same period. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. I focused mm-hmm. on, 
on that part of the Communist Manifesto. You know, the Communist yeah. Manifesto was energy growth and it was coal, which was disastrous, but it also included uh, wind turbines above the Arctic Circle or covering the Gobi Desert in solar panels, mm -hmm. uh, which was a story that wasn't getting as much coverage. Uh, and as a result, that, that project was a success as much for its research and its counter-narrative as it was for the actual pictures I produced. Were the magazines, the, the publications that you approached to try and get these stories out there, were they receptive to these counter-narratives that you were exploring? Or did you have to try and convince them of the, the value of approaching it in the way that you did? I, I, think, I think that was my, my trick. I mean, to be honest, that was my, my USP was having factual, unexpected narratives on a mm -hmm. big scale. Mm -hmm. In that period of my career where I was focusing on energy production, they're, they're really receptive, especially if the visuals then stack up in, in the yeah. same way the project is proposed. Mm -hmm. And, it, and it, was, it was also, you know, I took a really similar approach to what I'm doing at Climate Visuals strategically is, uh, and this was, you know, to the credit of my, my agent at Getty, mm -hmm. is I was working to produce environmental stories with the biggest impact. Yeah. So the first person you pull is the magazine with the biggest readership. And if they don't want it, you work your way down. Uh -huh. And then in the production cycle, once the largest magazines and newspapers have had the exclusive of the project, mm -hmm. then it goes out to pasture with the smaller national papers. Mm. Um, and that tactic was effective for two reasons. It, it was effective because I brought the biggest audience in the debate to the stories I felt were important. Mm -hmm. But also the stories I were covering were, were on the large side. And I personally often invested in those projects before shooting them. So just mm -hmm. purely from a, a kind of commercial means, we had to sell it to the magazine with the biggest budget first. Otherwise, yeah. I was never going to get my investment back to be able to produce any new work. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, they, they, were, they were receptive, definitely. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, and it was building up uh, a reputation of, of having a combination of, of solid new research and the images to back it up. And mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have wanted to ever try and get those stories placed with just one or the other. It was a narrative that a writer could easily adopt and run with and a set of strong pictures that an image editor could run with. They, they, were, they were the key to getting it receptive. Now your role within climate visuals, are you reflecting on, on those principles and, and what you're being exposed to within climate visuals and to inform future projects? I mean, yes. And, and to be very frank, uh, the, the kind of climate visuals principles ripped up a lot of my own uh, belief in the, the power of my own work, right? So, right? so it was a case of, ah, okay, your evidence suggests that the way I'm photographing things isn't that effective on people's behavior. It was, mm. it was a kind of a little bit of a, of a, of, of a not upsetting moment, but it, it was, you know, it was powerful to read. Um, mm -hmm. And part of my own journey with climate visuals is to, is to, is to expand that evidence base to include other research and move mm -hmm. away from just having the seven principles to, to other elements that might be useful to, con to contributors. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my biggest reflection on it is maybe not on specific work, but when you're, when you're working as a photographer, your, your capacity to deal with any number of projects in a year and what your specialism is or your niche is quite linear and quite narrow, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I worked extremely hard and I would produce two large projects a year and lots of other smaller projects for clients. Mm -hmm. um, I'm absolutely motivated by the fact that at Climate Visuals, I've stepped, I've stepped out from behind the lens. And mm -hmm. when I say behind the lens, I mean 
the camera lens, but also the lens being a metaphor for the type of photography and, and topic areas that I was good at as a, as a, as a shooter. Mm-hmm. So that kind of diptych means that I can now work with development stories better. I can work with, uh, you know, climate migration stories mm-hmm. around women rights or in areas of the world that I would never as a, as a white British photographer get access to, even if I had 10 lifetimes. So yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of means that I, I feel if my original motivation for producing environmental work was to have effective conversations about the environment, then I'm going to get a lot more done on that scale in my, you know, climate visuals role, mm. but I am hold, holding a camera. Um, mm-hmm. I thought I would feel some tension around that, but it, it, it feels good so far. Off the record, on the record, uh, being a dad helps as well. That's suddenly, suddenly the air miles and my trips away aren't as appealing as they used to be, put it that way. So yeah. Yeah. I think earlier on, there's no shortage of stories right in your doorstep, plenty to explore there within what the principles are also setting out. Definitely. And actually, if you're thinking about the points I'm in my career and about what's challenging, mm. climate change is quite and I've, I've had assignments like this before like go shoot climate change in the uk it's mm-hmm. actually not a very tangible visual issue in the uk but there mm-hmm. are elements or narratives that are now sadly demonstrating climate change and yep. i think yep. actually if I, I i prefer i think that is a more is a better place to be than charging to the edge of the sahara or the first lake that dries out or the californian wildfires right Mm -hmm. those those topics don't need my help in being there are are plenty plenty of uh journalists already on the case so yeah yeah yeah, i'm I'm interested in maybe the more nuanced ones that are a bit more of a puzzle anyway uh yeah especially if they're a short commute from home rather than a long-haul flight yeah exactly but it also adds to this kind of necessity to ensure that people understand that this is a global problem and that it's impacting everybody and, and the impacts will be felt by everybody and that we're in the midst of it. Because if the focus is on those lakes drying out or, or the edge of the Sahara and desertification and, and those less nuanced and, and more obvious kind of choices, then yeah, it maybe reinforces that belief that it's, it's a distant thing geographically and in time. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, I, think, I can't remember which politician it was, but like people will take notice when the price of milk and bread goes up. You know, mm. I think which is a really nice analogy for having something, you know, flooding at your doorstep, your food costs, uh, Brexit aside, are going through the roof. And, yeah. you yeah. know, and uh, some of, the, I, I, I don't agree with all of XR's methodology, but mm. some of their, their ideas of how, you know, society is potentially heading towards you know, um, complete turbulence. And mm. because of climate change, I don't think you're inaccurate. It doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, there are respectable conservative scientists who are saying the same thing. And yep. Uh, yep. yeah, let's, let's not wait till, let's not wait till the house is, I can't, I'm not going to get my metaphors screwed up, but I, I, <laughs> I don't want, it's, it's definitely a sense of urgency. That's, that's yeah. my simplest way of putting it. Yeah. 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 With your, more your photographer, uh, hat on than your climate visuals because obviously climate visuals has the the seven principles but more as your photographer hat on what recommendations would you give anyone that's just starting to explore a story on the issue of climate change uh specialize and do your homework you know we've talked about how climate change is such a broad topic i mm. think like even calling yourself a climate change or an environmental photographer is really not narrowing down your bandwidth much at all but but mm-hmm. go after something very specialized um mm-hmm. 
and that was also my my tactic career-wise as well because you get the the qualifications the the credibility and the knowledge and the language that you can then interface with stories and professionals mm. and, and industry mm-hmm. in, a, in a really solid way and yep. uh, climate change is not something that's happening in the photographic community so mm. well it is but, but my, my point being is the best place to interface i think would be to specialize in something yeah. you know be the guy that that owns you know wave generation electricity or mm. uh, specializes in micro migration of species suffering under climate change and just mm. just this kind of uh way of finding a common language with specialists at mm-hmm. a research level will give you access to great stuff and yeah. give you credibility amongst your you know your peers and your clients as well thank you very much for your time can you just share how people can find out more about the work of climate visuals and of you as a photographer absolutely so so quite handily climatevisuals.org is where you can find our site um and we're, you know, you can follow us on social media on the same handle. Um, and also my, my own personal website is, is tobysmith.com and I'm on social media as Toby Smith Photo with a PH. So yeah, I, I, I welcome comments in those arena. Um, Climate Visuals is, you know, for the next year, won't be focusing too much on uh, resources for contributors, but we welcome resources from contributors. So mm-hmm. if, uh, if when people look at the climate visuals website it, it, it inspires them to change their photography shooting or editing that's mm-hmm. great but if you look at the climate visuals website and think oh i've got images like that or i'm already on that kind of journey to shooting that way mm-hmm. we we are looking for submissions and adding to that library so mm-hmm. um, okay great do, do get in touch as well thank you very much again for your time i appreciate it Thanks for listening to the Documenting Climate Change podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Toby. And if you want to leave a comment or ask a question, please visit documentingclimatechange.org and navigate to the podcast section of the site. You'll also find the show notes there and find out ways in which you can become part of the Documenting Climate Change community. If you'd like to find out more about the work of Climate Visuals, you can visit them at climatevisuals.org. And Toby's portfolio site can be found at tobysmith.com. There's also the opportunity to collaborate with me and other members of the community in creating a season of radio documentaries. So please sign up to the site at documentingclimatechange.org and join the groups that interest you to become part of the movement towards creating more stories on climate change that have impact. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast via whichever app you use and please share this episode with everyone you know and help more people see it by leaving a rating and review. Thanks again and until next time, take care.